All right, let's take our Bibles, go to 2 Timothy chapter number 2, 2 Timothy chapter number 2. This is our fifth lesson on rightly dividing the word of truth, and uh, so uh, we have been enjoying the study and trust that you have been as well, and I'd like for you to stand here as we read our text, and we're going to read it to, um, I'm, I'm going to read it to you the, at first, and then I'm going to ask if everybody could look at me, and as many as possible, let's quote it together. I think that this would be a great verse for all of us to learn by memory. Before we do that, Sound Booth, are we, um, are we right here with the sound? I, I sound like I'm in a barrel up here. All right, that's, that's a little bit better. Okay. All right, did I sound like a barrel out there? Sounded fine to you? Okay. Well, that's not... Don't look at... Brother James looking at me. You're a little louder. Than you. Look back there. <laughs> right. 2 Timothy chapter number 2, verse number 15. I'll read it. Uh, the Bible says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, looking at me, let's everybody, as best as possible, let's quote it together. 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Father, we pray that you'd bless our study today. We've got a lot of verses to read, a lot of ground to cover, but Lord, these truths are so important in the life of every believer. Lord, it is your desire, we know, for us to learn the Bible for ourselves. We pray now that you would help us to communicate clearly, concisely. Lord, help us to stay on track with the information that needs to be presented. We pray, Father, for the help and the presence of the Holy Spirit As always, Lord, if anyone is here today that doesn't know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, we pray that something would be said today that the Holy Spirit would use to show them their need and draw them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would get glory and honor in our study today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So far in our previous four studies, we've seen the divisions in the Bible, rightly dividing the word of truth. We've seen divisions by way of application. We've seen divisions of the types of languages that are used. And when I say types of, I should have said language, not languages. Language as in the type of language, not different English, Greek, Hebrew, etc., but rather figurative language, symbolic language and literal language. We've also seen divisions of dispensations, different time periods throughout the Scripture. We've seen divisions of the classifications of people. The Bible classifies people in three different categories, Jew, Gentile, and then Church of God. And then last week, we took a look at the division of the covenants and the testaments that we find in the Scripture. Today, we get to at least the beginning of what I wanted to get to all along. Uh, We have been laying foundation after foundation and putting those forms and those blocks and trying to get a foundation that we can build doctrinal truth upon. And the study today is Roman numeral 5, the division 
of Israel and the church. I'd like to start out by talking about who is Israel. Well, I want to give you several highlights from Scripture. I mean, we could really go for hours talking about who Israel is. But just a few highlights. We start in Genesis chapter 12 and verse number 1, where the Bible says that the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great. Thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. And so the nation of Israel was founded upon a promise that God made with a man named Abram. God eventually changed his name to Abraham. Abraham was a friend of God. And all of the promises that God has fulfilled with the nation of Israel all stems back to this promise that he made with his friend Abraham. And by the way, I think it always is worth Uh, reminding and repeating, when God said to Abraham, I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee, that is still in full force today. Even though Israel is spiritually in an extremely backslidden condition, God has never repealed that promise. And I know when we've got an election coming up here in just a few months, and we're hearing all kinds of social issues and economic issues, and we're hearing different candidates slinging mud against everyone. And really, at the top of the list in my book, maybe not, I guess I'd have to say it is number one, is whoever I'm going to vote for, I want to know what they think about Israel, Because we need God's blessings on America. And if we are not fulfilling, if we are not cooperating with what God promised with Abraham, then we can't afford to have God going against us. We live in a sin-cursed world. Life is rough enough with God on our side We still have problems, we still have sickness, we still have tragedies and so forth, but we don't want God against us. And so at the top of the list is that issue. And then, of course, the moral issues are uh, certainly right there, a very close second. I want to know what a candidate believes about murdering babies. I want to to know what a candidate believes as far as biblical marriage and biblical sexuality. Those are important because when we go against what God has said, when, when we endorse something that God says is an abomination to Him, then we're, we're a nation that God doesn't want to be around. And a lot of what we are experiencing today is the results of basically pushing God out, saying, we don't need you. I hope and pray that not only God's people, but America as a nation will wake up and realize that what we're dealing with is the result of pushing God out of our society. I'd like to see people with a heart saying, God, we want you back. We need you. 
midst of this pandemic and rioting, it seems like that we're not hearing a whole lot of that message being trumpeted. But I want to trumpet it here today. We need to get God back. We need to repent as individuals, as communities, as nations. But this is the beginning of Israel in Genesis 12. And then in Genesis 15, in verse number 13, God had several conversations with Abram. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward they shall come out with great substance." God told Abraham what would happen with the Egyptian captivity. And you know exactly what God said would happen is what happened. Israel ended up sojourning in Egypt. They were there for a little over 400 years, 430 to be exact. And God, through Moses and through miracles and plagues, God brought them out of Egypt. And through that, they became a great nation. And then one more uh, highlight about Israel, Genesis 21 and verse number 1, and the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. I like that phrase, as he had said. And the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken, for Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son in his old age. Abraham is a hundred, Sarah is ninety. And listen, time was the same back then as it is today. It says here, um, for Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son in his old age, and at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son that was born unto him, whom Sarah bare to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac, being eight days old, as God had commanded him. And so that sign, that covenant of circumcision for all of the males, that was what God said to Abraham, I want all of your descendants, all of your children to do that. And these are all distinguishing factors of what make all of the descendants of Abraham to, uh, to form the nation of Israel. The name Israel comes from Abraham's grandson, who uh, his birth name was Jacob. And of course, Jacob was a man who wrestled with God, who had a great faith in God, a very imperfect man. In fact, Jacob, the one whom Israel was named after, it's kind of ironic how the, the entire personality and character of the nation of Israel really has a lot of parallels with Jacob to whom they were named after. And so God changed Jacob's name to Israel, and because he was one of the patriarchs of the founding of the nation of Israel, that is where their name comes from. Let's talk now about who and what is the church. The word church simply means congregation or assembly. We're going to see here that there are several ways in which the word church is used in the Scripture. Now, when we're talking about rightly dividing the Scripture, it's always imperative that we understand that words have meanings, and not ju- they're not just a title for something. There are words in the Scripture, words like baptism, 
that the word baptism has a meaning. It means to be immersed. And very frequently we see the word baptism simply meaning the immersion of something. And it's not necessarily a title because there are multiple baptisms in the Scripture. And if you get confused and think that everyone is the same, it's just a title, then you're going to be confused in your doctrine. You're certainly going to be confused in your practice. Church simply means a congregation or an assembly. Much is made about the Greek word ekklesia, saying it's a called-out assembly. And I'm not saying that the church isn't uh, a called-out assembly, but the word has a definition, and the word congregation and assembly always fits in the word usage no matter, uh, no matter where. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 22 says, But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. Now watch this, folks to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to the God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. Notice that this word church is referred to as a general assembly. People whose names are written in heaven. Now, pretty much every church local that I know of keeps keeps a role or a membership list. But this is a membership of a church that the names are written in heaven, not here on this earth. And so this is the church, the church that's written in heaven, that's the one that we need to be a member of. Because you can be the member of a church here on this earth and not a member in that church which is in heaven, and you're not going to make it to heaven just based on being the member. I don't care how good your church is, being a member of a local church is not going to get anyone to heaven. In Acts chapter number 7, I want you to notice how interesting the use of the word church appears in verse number 38. This is he, this is Stephen's sermon This is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in Mount Sinai and with our fathers who received the lively oracles to give unto us. This church in the wilderness, Stephen is referring to the children of Israel after they had been called out of Egypt, after they were a congregation in the wilderness. They're wandering to and fro. They're at Mount Sinai, and God gives them the law and the covenant. And so that congregation is referred to as a church. But lest we get confused, that congregation, the nation of Israel, just because God calls them the church in the wilderness doesn't mean that we're the same as them. Once again... The word church is not always a title, it has a meaning and it describes a congregation or an assembly. The first mention of the word church is in Matthew 16 and verse number 18, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ that uses the word church. In prophecy, he said in verse 18, and I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock 
I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, I think it was a couple of weeks ago that just in passing, I mentioned how that this particular verse is really, really misconstrued by so much of not only Roman Catholics, but also the Protestant world. If you look at that verse real closely, if you look at the, the verses before it and after it, then there are some things that will come clear that don't necessarily look clear if you just read this verse by itself. When you read this verse by itself, it could lead you to think that the church is built upon Peter. But the church is not built upon Peter. Peter had even recognized that Christ was the rock. And so this is an answer that Jesus is giving just a few verses earlier, and we don't have time to study it, but a few verses before that, Jesus said, whom do men say that I am? And Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And the subject matter at hand is still Christ, the son of the living God. And that's where Jesus said, thou art Peter. Listen, Peter, your name may mean a stone, but on this rock, I will build my church. Folks, the church is built upon the rock Jesus Christ, not Peter, Cephas, a stone. And so it's very, very vital that we make that distinguishing difference. So the church is built upon Christ. And notice the last part of the verse where Jesus goes on to say, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. All right, so we've got the same it, that Jesus is referring to, that it is the rock. Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. If you read that without taking the context in, in, um, in light, then you'll think that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. How many times have I heard that quoted, even from this pulpit? Well, like the Bible says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. That's not what it says. Jesus is still the subject matter at hand. The gates of hell are not going to prevail against Jesus Christ. Acts chapter number 2, Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. The prophecy of Jesus. Jesus went three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And he rose again the third day. And so the gates of hell did not prevail against the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder, I wonder what the early, early Christians who were... I mean, if you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, I, I wonder what they would have thought of the preaching that... The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. They saw the gates of hell prevailing against the church. It was their lifestyle. And by the way, we're nowhere close to what our founding fathers had to go through. The early Christians. We, we know nothing. I mean, even, I, I mean, I hope and pray that the churches in California, that God will enable them to continue to be able to assemble. And I hope and pray that no good man of God gets thrown into jail. But folks, that's nothing compared to what, I mean, certainly the first 300 years of church history, 
they had to hide in caves and all the things that we have doctrinal squabbling about today and little petty stuff. They didn't have time to deal with petty stuff. They were trying to serve and worship the Lord Jesus Christ and just stay alive while they did it. We dare never forget the blood that was shed that gave us our spiritual freedom. I appreciate the blood that was shed that gave us our civil freedom in America. I appreciate all of the veterans that have fought and suffered and families that have suffered along with them. Some have made the supreme sacrifice. Others have come back injured and wounded. And some, while they may not have been physically wounded, their lives were changed forever because of war and the battle for freedom. I appreciate that. And I'm offended when they burn our flag. I'm offended when they will not stand in reverence to the flag and to the what it represents in this free nation. It's a bunch of thugs. That's all it is. They're, and you know, the, the truth of the matter is, is they're not even, they're just using the social and racial injustice as an excuse to act like they want to, like they want to act. That, that's what really, really gets me. And I hope and pray that somehow, some way, that the leaders of this country will stop being afraid of the mob and start dealing with it. Anyhow, I, it's not in my notes, but I appreciate the freedom that we have. And dare we never forget that we have spiritual freedom because of Christians who were willing to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and witness and copy the Scripture and propagate the Scripture even though their lives were in great danger and great peril. Jesus prophesied of the church to come and then the first mention of the word church in practice we find in Acts chapter 2 and verse number 47 where the Bible says, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Now the interesting thing is that this church in Acts 2.47 is both universal and local at the same time. This is the only church that there was. And they didn't have to deal with the confusion and the dysfunction that we have to deal with, uh, certainly in America and for much of the last 2,000 years of church history. Do you know if someone was part of this church and, um, and they had church problems, they had to either get it right or they were on the outside looking in? Nowadays, that doesn't work. You, you deal with a problem, whether it's moral or doctrinal or ethical, whatever, then people aren't going to get it right. They're just going to go find another church. They, they, they don't ever do the biblical process of sitting down with, with the people and having an open conversation. People today, Christians today, can get by with being cowards. That brings us to the next part of our study this morning, and that is the subdivision of the church. This subdivision doesn't have a cul-de-sac, but it is a subdivision when we're talking about the church. 
As I already said, Acts 2.47, the church is both universal and local. The universal church, and uh, I don't, don't take this wrong, but the term universal, another word for that is Catholic. With a little c. I believe in the Catholic church. Little c. I believe in the big c. I believe it exists. I just don't believe that it's right. And they adopted the word Catholic because it's a Latin word for universal. Now what they do is they say we are the universal church. They're saying that our organization is the only one. And everybody else is some kind of dissenters. Well, that's not, I certainly don't believe that. But the universal church is also called the body of Christ. Colossians 1.18, and he is the head of the body, the church, speaking of Christ, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Jesus Christ, the firstborn from the dead. Thank God he's the head of the church. Everyone that has been saved is a member of this church. Membership in this church comes by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, verse number 13. The Bible says, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. Now, this is another verse. Isn't it interesting that all of these pivotal verses, that it's so essential that we rightly divide the word of truth in order to have the right doctrine and practice, every single one of these verses that we've looked at already today are verses that are misconstrued and false doctrine and false practice are the end result. This verse, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13 I have a I have a bottle of water in here on the pulpit. This started out with twenty ounces. I've drunk about half of it. I got ten ounces of water in this bottle. You know how much water is in First Corinthians twelve thirteen? None. Zero. Zip. Baptism, just like the word church has a meaning. It's not always the title or designation for a particular thing. If you're going to understand the Scripture, you're going to have to learn when God's using something as a title and when God's using it for a word meaning to describe what it is. Baptized. Notice it says, for by one spirit. This is a spiritual baptism. When you get born again, it is an invisible spiritual transaction. It is a spiritual event that takes place. Literally, we are immersed by the Spirit of God into the body of Christ. No water. You don't see it. You don't necessarily feel it. But it's something that happens, and that's what makes us part of the body of Christ. And if you think, I don't buy that preacher, that's water baptism. Well, what about the second half of the verse? 
it says we've been all made to drink into one spirit. You know, here is a prime example of rightly dividing the types of languages. We have here figurative language that's teaching a literal truth. I've yet to find anyone, I mean, they'll argue saying that's talking about baptism in water. I've yet to find anyone explain what it means to drink of that water. What does that mean? Is that a separate, is that a separate um, sacrament, if you will? Uh, where you, you drink, do you drink the same water that you're baptized in? Are you supposed to take a gulp while you're being immersed? I mean, if, if you believe in sprinkling, does that mean you're supposed to like lift your face up and let them sprinkle that water in your mouth too? Now, I, I appreciate the chuckling and the grins because you say, well, that's ridiculous. It's no more ridiculous than taking this verse and saying the first part of it's literal and the second part is figurative. That is not rightly dividing the word of truth. That is conveniently dividing the word of truth to fit your doctrine rather than making our doctrine fit what the word of God teaches. So membership into this universal church comes by being born again. Remember Jesus said in John chapter number 3, except a man be born of water and the Spirit... See, the new birth, the first birth is a water birth. Your, the, the, the mother's water breaks and then the baby comes forth. That is a water birth. But the spiritual birth, the new birth, comes by the Spirit of God and that's what puts us, places us into the body of Christ. Now, the second part of this subdivision is the local church. And here's one example, 1 Corinthians 16, verse number 19, Paul said, the churches of Asia salute you, Aquila and Priscilla salute you much in the Lord with the church that is in their house. That is a local church. And it is very important that we distinguish the difference between a local church and the universal church. Now, I believe that every local church should be a representation of the universal church. That's why it's so so imperative that we be doctrinally pure, we be morally and spiritually pure, because this local church should represent the body of Christ. There should not be divisions. There shouldn't be dysfunctions. There should be a functioning body, just like my fingers and my hands and my arms and my body and my back and my legs and my toes and my ears and my nose. If my body is to be healthy, then everything needs to be working and functioning together. That's what the body of Christ is. And the local church should be a representation of that. Now, the next thing that I want to talk about, and I can see I'm probably not going to get through with this study this morning is what is called replacement theology. The the term that you'll find is the term supersessionism. Replacement theology or supersessionism basically maintains that the church has replaced the Jew, or Israel if you will, as God's people on earth. 
This is the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. This is the teaching of mainstream Protestantism. It's the teaching of the Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, Calvinism, modern post-tribulation rapture proponents. You know, there's a, there's a ministry in the southeast. I'll not mention names this morning. But there's a ministry that this particular um, ministry leader has gotten a lot of traction in America through social media, YouTube sermons. When I first heard of this ministry and I first saw some of the YouTube videos, I thought, wow, that guy is crazy. I mean, it was like every time, everything that he preached, it was like, look at me and look at how brave I am, that I can tell it like it is. And there was mean-spiritedness and venom. And uh, I just thought, wow, that guy's, I don't, that, that guy's got a bad spirit. It's like he's got something to prove. Now, folks, I'm all for backbone. I'm all for courage. But you know, you can have courage and backbone in the flesh. It doesn't take the Spirit of God to be brave. And so, I, I mean, I, I, when, when this guy started getting traction and started teaching supersessionism and teaching that the church is going through the tribulation period, I scratched my head and I thought, surely there's not that many people that are that foolish in churches in America. Sadly, I was wrong. And more and more, and you know what I think's the root of it? I'll tell you what I think the root of it is. It's the same thing we, we see in every organization, every uh, entity that has authority. There are people that are adopting different beliefs. Really, the root is almost rebellion. It's almost like, you know what? Uh, this is what my church taught and they made me mad or offended me, so I'm just going to go believe something else. And we see that in America today. I think that a lot of the liberals are believing stuff that it's like, how could, there's no way that you could rationally believe that. Their, their motive is not because they think it's true. Their motive is, well, if I stand up for this cause, then it's going to hurt my parents because they were against that. There's a spirit of rebellion. Some of these people say that they, they came to these conclusions by studying the Bible for their self. I personally, I think that's a bunch of baloney. In fact, it's just like Calvinism. I, I've yet to find hardly anybody that became a Calvinist by studying the Bible. They became Calvinist by studying Calvinism what other people wrote about it. The same way. You know what? Here's the bottom line. If somebody wants to go through the tribulation period, help yourself. I don't plan on it. I plan on being delivered from the wrath to come, like the Bible says. I plan on being out of here. But if you want to, help yourself. And you know what? Here's the thing. There's no need for any division with that. I would have no problem with somebody being a member of this church and thinking that as long as they don't teach it in a Sunday school class. Because after all, this church, we have a statement of faith and we believe that we are getting out of here before the tribulation period. 
Now, let's get back to the, let me get back to the topic at hand. Supersessionism or replacement theology. That's the teaching that the church has replaced Israel as God's people on earth. Well, you know what? I find a serious admonition in the Scripture. In fact, I find two of them that uh, really are sobering if you pay attention. For someone that says, we have replaced the Jew, consider what God said, what Jesus said to the church at Smyrna in the book of Revelation. Revelation 2, verse number 9 I know thy works, and tribulation, and poverty, but thou art rich, and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews, and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Now listen, I am not saying that anybody that has a different view of the rapture is of the synagogue of Satan. I'm not necessarily saying that everybody that believes in replacement theology is of the synagogue of Satan. I'm just simply pointing out that God takes this false doctrine very seriously. And if I was ever going to entertain the thought that me as a member of the church, that I now am, have replaced Israel... Um, that verse right there, I better take it, I better make sure that I am rightly dividing the word of truth because obviously God takes that pretty seriously. Now notice what he says to the church of Philadelphia. And, and by the way, the church of Philadelphia is the one right before Laodicea. Uh, Laodicea certainly, that brings us right up either to or in the tribulation period. Laodicea is a lukewarm church. It's a liberal church. It's a um, it's an uh, apostate church. But God says, Jesus said to Philadelphia, chapter three, verse nine: Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Who's he saying that he loved? He says, because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. And so God's saying to the church of Philadelphia, he's going to keep them from this time that's going to try the earth. But they, during Philadelphia... They too are dealing with a doctrine that says, we are the Jews now, we have replaced them. Paul the apostle of the Gentiles was given clear understanding of the mystery of the church, as well as the blindness of Israel. Now I had hoped to do a verse by verse study in Romans chapter 11 today, but I can see that I'm not going to have time to do it justice. I'm Already been trying to hurry uh, probably too much here this morning. Romans chapter 11 and verse number 25. Paul says, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel. Until when? 
until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. Now I have no idea what my IQ is. Some of you might have your opinion, <laughs> and you're welcome to that. I, I definitely don't think, I, I think that I'm probably somewhere in the middle of the road there. I'm certainly not a brainiac. <laughs> I would have a hard time selling that to anybody. But I'm not, uh, I'm not a dummy either. And I know that when I read that verse of Scripture, that makes it pretty crystal clear that God is not through with Israel He's going back to them after the fullness of the Gentiles. Paul had a heart for Israel. Romans chapter number 9 and verse number 1, Paul says, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. You know what Paul's saying there? He's saying, God, if Israel would be saved, if they would accept Christ and become the nation that you want them to be, I would be willing to be accursed. I'd be willing to go to hell, me personally, if you would rescue my brethren the entire nation of Israel. He said, Who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Paul understood the mystery of the church as the apostle of the Gentiles. Paul, whom I personally believe was the author of the book of Hebrews, Paul had a very special perception, if you will, a vantage point to where he not only understood the mystery of the church, but he also saw the mystery of what God was going to do with the Hebrews, the nation of Israel, and eventually bringing them back to the nation that God wanted them to be. Just one passage, if you would go to Romans chapter number 11, and I'll give you a couple verses here to just whet your appetite for next week's study. In verse number 1 of chapter 11, Paul says, I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. Wot ye not that the scripture saith of Elias how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying? So in verse 1 and 2, Paul says God has not cast away his people. Now look down at verse number 11. Paul says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But rather through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. If you look closely at verse number 11, Paul's saying that 
They haven't fallen, but he's saying that they have. Now, he's not being senile. He's not being double-minded. He's making a very important point. Look at verse number 12. Now, if the fall of them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. And so in verse number 11, we find no contradiction. We find an explanation. Have, have they fallen? Have they stumbled? God forbid. Paul says, no, they have, but it is only a temporary fall, a temporary stumble. It is not permanent. Now, I want to take that relationship between God and Israel, and I want to wrap things up here this morning. Perhaps there's some here this morning that all of this doctrinal study, maybe you've kind of, maybe it's been confusing, too much information, too fast. The one thing that I want to remind you of is how God dealt with His nation Israel. They rebelled against Him. All through their history, God would bring a revival, God would raise up a man, God would raise up a king, and He would lead the nation back to Him. As soon as the pressure let off, guess what would happen? They'd go right back to their old ways. They'd start worshiping other gods, they'd start, uh, they'd start mistrusting the God who had done so much for them. And time after time after time, you know what God would do? He would welcome them back. God, when the Bible says here that God has cast away His people, it's only temporary. It is part of what God said would happen. He told them it from the get-go. And listen, God it does not tell a lie. God does not forget any of His promises. When God says something, you can take it to the bank. It is going to be true. God told them from the get-go, if you'll follow me, if you'll worship me, if you'll serve me, I'll bless you. I mean, you won't have to worry about enemies. You won't have to worry about the clothes that you wear. You won't have to worry about sickness. You know that God told them that if you'll follow me, you won't even have pestilences and sicknesses. Makes you wonder maybe what God's trying to tell America. Between viruses, between, I mean, the last 10, 15 years, forest fires, floods, hurricanes. You know, folks, I remember as a kid, every year, I mean, if there was a hurricane in the southeast, if it was, it, it drew some attention because it didn't happen. Nowadays, we have, we have one back to back to back, right? I, I mean, when I was a kid, I could probably name three or four hurricanes that I heard about because they were, they were famous. Now we got, I, I don't even remember the names. They ran out of lady names and had to start naming them men. Ladies, you should be offended. You probably should have been offended that they named the hurricane after women to begin with. <laughs> but, but seriously, folks, floods, hurricanes, forest fires, pestilence, anxiety, depression, fear. You know, if you study, you study the book of Deuteronomy, 
If you doubt what I'm saying, read the book of Deuteronomy. You're eventually going to get to places where God makes it crystal clear. Israel, you do right, and you serve me, and you love me, and you won't have to worry about any of these things. But if you reject me, God says, you're going to get just the opposite. Brothers and sisters, we see it happening in America today. Not because we are Israel, but because, listen, God is the same God. Regardless of the nation, there are certain things that God blesses and there are certain things that God curses. But in all of it, no matter how far a nation has drifted away from God, no matter how much a nation has rebelled against God, God is waiting with open arms and pleading that men would repent. And you know what is good news about that absolute truth about God? Is that the same thing applies applies to you and me as individuals. You know, no matter what you've done, hey, there's consequences. We reap what we sow. There are certain things that sins that we can commit decisions that we make that's going to have consequences. But it doesn't have to be eternal consequences because God is waiting and ready to forgive if we will just repent. 1 John 1, verse number 9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It doesn't matter how far Israel has gone, One day they're going to repent. And the diminishing of them has opened up the door for our salvation. What a glorious thing it's going to be for planet earth. For the human race. When Israel nationally says, we messed up. We crucified our Messiah. We see it now. And we want Him to be our Savior. We know that it's His blood that we need for the remission of our sins. One of these days, Israel is going to see it. The book of Hebrews is going to come to life to them in ways that we can't even understand it here today. But the same blood that was shed for Israel is the same blood that can save you and I as Gentiles. Hey, God didn't, God wanted to save Israel. But thank God, there's still some crumbs that fall from the Master's table. And I sure do appreciate those crumbs. We're going to see next week a little bit more details in Romans 11. Hopefully we'll have time to get into the book of Hebrews as well. If you'll be patient, and you'll just uh, fall, just, just let the Word of God start building these blocks, it's going to open up the Bible. You're going to understand some things that you haven't before. And it I trust it will be a blessing to you as well.